Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now, you're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Uh, That's a great team win. Uh, I'm really proud of the guys for fighting like crazy to get to this game. Uh, guys that were pushing through those injuries, uh, it was just incredible to see what they, you know, these Thursday night games, what they put their body through, and I'm, I'm really proud of them. Now my pride is, is hurt more than anything. You know, I talked a lot of before, you know, this game, and I made it, you know, personal, and I wanted the animosity. I wanted this to be that game, and, um, you know, I wanted to win it. You heard you know, LeBron shouted you out on Twitter. Man, you big time. <laughs> That's big time right there. LeBron? Yeah. 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 Man, that's my favorite basketball player. I ain't gonna lie to you. Not a lot of points, but plenty of intrigue and storylines Thursday night to kick off week seven of the 2021 season. We're gonna break down the Broncos at the Browns, plus everything else happening in the NFL as we move toward Halloween. Peter King. Mike Florio here with you for the next two hours. Peter, we are about a week and two days away from Halloween, but the question just popped into my mind, so I'm going to ask it. Do you have a costume, and what will it be? No, the last time I dressed up for Halloween, Mike, uh, I was Cher and Ann King was Sonny. And that was (laughs) in, I think, 19... That was in 1981 in Cincinnati, Ohio, but... We have not done the adult version of Halloween since, and I have zero plans to do so. Yeah, you know, I don't think I've ever done the adult version of Halloween, ever. I think the last time I dressed up was with one of those cheap masks with the little piece of plastic that, like, kept it pressed against your face and you couldn't breathe, but you got a sack of candy out of it, so... That's all that really mattered, a sack of candy. Because back in those days, I don't know how it was when you were growing up, there really wasn't a whole lot of candy around in the house. Like, we have a lot of candy now. But when I was growing up, there wasn't a lot of candy in the house. So Halloween was the opportunity to go get yourself a big bag of candy and eat it all in in one sitting. Listen, that was one of the great holidays of all time when I was a kid because we never had candy in the house. So it was like a a two-and-a-half-day binge. And then the bad thing was 
you know, the third day when all the candy was gone, that's when you would get first the apples and then you would get the little peanut butter and cheese crackers in that little <laughs> rectangular package. And you would just, you'd curse those people for giving those to you, saying, don't you realize all I want is a crappy little Milky Way? Don't you, don't you realize that? But evidently well, they didn't realize that. We are prepared every year for an onslaught, but we live on top of a steep hill, so we hardly get anyone. So there's a lot of leftover candy that someone then has to eat. So I'm looking forward to October the 30. What about Macy First, the I dog? Was, give that, give it, give the candy to Macy the dog. No, no, no chocolate for dogs. No chocolate. They can yeah. eat everything else. They can eat everything else, right? Anything else you can imagine, they can eat. But you give them chocolate, and they kill over dead. So I haven't tested that but that's what i hear yeah. chocolate and grapes that's they can eat anything mean. else all the most disgusting things you can imagine but chocolate or grapes <laughs> and that's it lights out on the dog i don't get it all right uh, i was looking forward to last night's game just because i wanted to see what the browns could do with their backs against the wall and so many guys injured the broncos after starting three and oh against a trio of cupcakes had fallen to three and three could they pull it together there was a lot of swagger a lot of confidence from von miller articulated by him during the week and I thought it was humorous we got a kick out of it I'm going to kill whoever lines up across from me it was great but at the same time when it was time to play you saw that the Browns were the team that was better prepared more more eager more desperate you know they're feeling it Peter I mean even at four and three they're a disappointment and they needed that one last night and I sensed that from everything they did even though it was a close game I sensed that the Browns recognized the time to screw around has ended. Look, last night I'm watching the game and I look up and there at right tackle is our good friend, Blake Hance. You remember Blake Hance, Mike? He's the guy yeah, Blake who Hance. last January, last January, the uh, when the Cleveland Browns were desperate for a practice squad offensive lineman uh, around the league, but one who they could get in. Remember, if you sign someone off another team's practice squad and that person has to fly to Cleveland, that person then has to go through the whole COVID protocol and won't be eligible to play for a few days. So what, what Andrew Barry of the Browns did is he looked at all of the teams within like a six-hour drive of Cleveland. And he looked at all these teams and he said, who can I get who can, who can get in a car on Saturday, the day before a game against the Pittsburgh Steelers? Who could we get who could just drive here? And the guy who they sort of liked a little bit was on the Jets practice squad, Blake Hance. And so on, on Saturday morning, they called the Jets, said, we're going to put in a claim for Blake Hance. We're going to bring him in. And Blake Hance was at their team meeting after driving from Florham Park, New Jersey that night. The long and short of it is he becomes a good plugger player for the Cleveland Browns down the stretch. He played in two playoff games, played well, and he comes back this year. He's not a practice squatter. He is on the roster. And on Thursday night, he plays the complete game at right tackle. He has to block the aforementioned Von Miller. And so that is what, you know, to me, 
in my opinion, in the NFL, I've been thinking about this more and more. You see this huge spate of injuries. So what do you do, Mike? You beef up your middle class and you concentrate on the 38th, 45th, 49th man on your roster because you know if you're Andrew Barry at some point, Dearness Johnson, your fourth running back, is going to have to play. How is he going to respond? Blake Hance is going to have to play. And Andrew Barry, at least for one night, built a roster that responded to the problems that the Cleveland Browns are having. They beat what is now appearing to be a lousy Denver team, or at least an equally beat up Denver team. But again, no one asks you after the season. So back in week seven, when you won that game against Denver, were they pretty beat up? Nobody cares. You won the game and that's what they needed to do. This was a survivor game for the Browns. And the one other thing it was, Mike, it told everyone that we can win a game with Case Keenum. And in my opinion, if I'm Kevin Stefanski, I am holding out Baker Mayfield until that shoulder has been repaired and that broken bone in there is fused together. There is no sense in getting him hit again and getting him knocked out for the rest of the year. We'll get into all of that in sequence, and let's go back to Dearness Johnson, a guy who has had a very creative path to where he now is from the Alliance of American Football was with the Browns last year, had a 95-yard game against the Dallas Cowboys, but his first start in the NFL came last night. And there's his direct message that he sent to each of the AAF teams in 2019. Hi, my name is Dearness Johnson. I'm former running back for the University of South Florida. After finishing college, I attended training camp with the Saints, where I've since been a free agent. I'm very interested in becoming a part of the Alliance League and would love the chance to send in my highlight videos for you all to view well if he were doing that again he would have a new set of highlight videos peter because he was phenomenal last night with 146 rushing yards on 22 attempts and a touchdown and the blocking was great but this kid has great vision there were numerous times where he shifted and slipped his way into daylight where i don't quite think that he was going for the hole that was supposed to be there so he found a different one and you know it proves yet again and I don't want to demean the running back position. I praise it because there are so many guys out there with the skills. And they are rare skills, but there are plenty of guys who have them, which allows teams to go three, four deep. And when Nick Chubb is out with a calf injury and when Kareem Hunt is out with a calf injury, you've got Dearness Johnson. Let's hear from Coach Kevin Stefanski and Dearness Johnson on the big night that he had in his first NFL start. Dearness Johnson to me is just a warrior, um, great teammate. Uh, what he's fought through in his career and then to go have a, a night like that and, and to end it how he did uh, on that third down, I thought was just uh, outstanding. They just basically told me, just be me, man. Don't change nothing. Just be you. Continue doing you. That's what got me here and don't change nothing, you know. So what did the first touchdown and first 100-yard game in the NFL feel like? Unexplainable. I, I can't even lie to you. Like I didn't. I wanted to celebrate, but I didn't know what to do, man. <laughs> like I just yelled because it's been a long journey, man. And just to to get your first start and get a hundred yards and get a touchdown, man. That ain't nothing but God, man. And I give thanks to Him. 
Dearness Johnson sealed the game not once, but twice with third down runs. Third and two, he had a convincing run where he sat down around the five and didn't score to ice the clock. And then there was a penalty, an illegal shift. David Njoku went forward before the snap. So it was third and seven. He had to do it again, and he did it again. So twice on third down, he got it done for the Cleveland Browns to put the game away. And uh, hey, hey, if Chubb and Hunt are going to be out for a while... They're going to be fine with this kid. He was phenomenal last night, Peter. Hey, look, you know what I kept thinking about last night, Mike? I kept thinking back to uh, Saquon Barkley being the second pick in the draft. And, you know, you know and I know and we've talked about it that in today's football, in modern football, um, I mean, unless you're Jim Brown and maybe even if you're Jim Brown, you shouldn't be picked with the second pick in the draft. The game is different these days. So I looked up last night and I looked back at the draft I will always remember about this is the 2017 draft. Okay, remember, a rookie that year, Kareem Hunt, if not for his problems, who knows what would have, what he would have been or, and what he still might be. But he wins the rushing title as a rookie, 86th overall pick in the draft. Alvin Kamara, 67th overall pick in the draft. Aaron Jones, 182nd pick in the draft. And the bottom line is there is depth at running back. It's, to me, fruitless to take a running back. So many examples that you see now. Not, I wouldn't call them waste. I would just call it way, way over-picking running backs. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, 32nd, when two incredible defensive pieces... Antoine Winfield Jr. Uh, and Trevon Diggs are both on the board for the Kansas City Chiefs. And boy, what would they give to have that draft back right now? So, and it's silly to think of that at a time like this, but I just think, what is the smart way to build your roster? And the smart way to build your roster, in my opinion, is not to use one of the highest draft picks in recent history that you've, that you've had on a running back. Well, and what happened last night underscores that point. For anyone out there that is yet to come over to our side on this, a guy who was sending direct messages via Twitter to every account of each of the Alliance of American Football teams asking for consideration is good enough to rush for 146 yards in the National Football League. That just shows you that they are out there and you don't have to go first round pick you don't have to go top 10 pick you mentioned the 2017 draft Peter that year and plenty of teams get criticized for passing on Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson that year the Jaguars took Leonard Fournette with the fourth pick and the Panthers took Christian McCaffrey with the eighth pick now McCaffrey looked like a winner for the first four years but he's been injured each of the last two seasons and that's not his fault that's part of the position You have to factor that in if you're going to use that high pick on a running back. There's a good chance this guy's going to get hurt. And you don't know where the next Emmitt Smith is going to be who can suit up and play no matter what body part is hanging off of him and he he otherwise should not be playing, but he still finds a way to play. You don't know who has that superhuman ability to avoid injury or play through it. Most humans on the planet don't. So it's a huge risk. And I, I know that 
Dave Gettleman was asked at one point, I think, during training camp, if he had regrets, if he'd do it over again. Of course, he's not going to say, you know, I really did screw that up. We all know it at this point. He really did screw that up in 2018, taking a running back with the second overall pick. He hasn't gotten the return. He hasn't gotten close to the return, not because Saquon Barkley isn't good, but because he's been injured too much, because that goes with the territory, the position that he plays. Yeah, and Mike, it's not it's not Saquon Barkley's fault. He's not the one who picked himself second overall. Um, but the fact is, and you look at running backs, and the majority of running backs are going to get either an injury or a major injury early on in their career. Look, so many players do that as well. But I just think now we have progressed past the idea that football, a football like in the 50s and 60s, which I think most personnel people in the NFL have done. Not all, obviously. But most personnel people understand that you can get a perfectly fine running back late in the third round these days. And there's enough depth at that position that you absolutely unequivocally need to take players at positions of bigger value before you take a running back. When today's Jim Brown a.k.a. Derrick Henry, was a second-round pick. That's further proof that you don't have to go first round to get yourself a great running back. Now, a far more important position to the sustained success of a team is quarterback. And as the Eagles would say, backup quarterback, one of the top 10 to 15 positions on the entire roster. In Cleveland, one of the first orders of business for Kevin Stefanski when he became the head coach in 2020 was to reunite with Case Keenum, who went with Stefanski in Minnesota took the team to the NFC Championship. They didn't need Keenum until last night, and Keenum got it done. Let's hear from Stefanski and Case Keenum on his performance in place of Baker Mayfield. Case fought like he always does. I thought he orchestrated the operation. Um, He took care of the football, and then that was a huge play uh, at the end there, uh, or not at the end, but in in the end zone there uh, on fourth down uh, just to make a play, uh, fighting for extra yardage, uh, but he he did a great job fighting. Yes, I felt calm and poised. Um, Yeah, I think... uh, you know, it was it was a great first drive there. Kevin put together a great first 15, and, and the offensive line did a great job. We hit uh, hit the screen, um, you know, hit the keeper to juice, and then, uh, <clears throat> you know, who, who made obviously a great play on that screen, and then we ran the ball really well, um, and, and that kind of broke the seal, broke the ice, and uh, it was kind of like, take a breath, all right, let's play now. And, uh, you know, I thought, uh, you know, we did enough to win the game. It was great, great job all around. Yeah, and it was a great job all around. 21 for 33, 199 yards and a touchdown. Not spectacular numbers. And look, the game was closer than it should have been. It felt like a bigger margin of victory for the Browns, but the score is what it is, 17-14 Cleveland wins. You mentioned Baker Mayfield. A strange week for him because he admitted to Jay Glazer, and Glazer reported this last night, that that he has a fracture at the top of the humerus at the shoulder and he can't play until that heals and he's got other damage, the torn labrum. He's had the shoulder dislocate twice now over a four-week period. But man, on Tuesday, he sounded like a guy who was determined to play like it was his birthright to play and his exclusive decision as to whether or not he plays. Last night, I heard Troy Aikman at one point say Baker woke up on Wednesday and he knew he couldn't do it. I have a feeling the truth is a little more fuzzy than that. I have a feeling the truth has a lot more to do with someone sitting Baker down and saying, 
this isn't how it works. You don't get to decide who plays and who doesn't. At some point, we have to do what's best for the team. And they did. And the thing that was best for the team one year plus ago was having a good backup in case Keenum ready to go, who can come in and win a football game for you, as he reminded us all last night, Peter. Look, you know, I thought that Case Keenum was, in in his own way, absolutely fabulous last night. And I'll take you to the last drive of the game, Mike. They get the ball with five minutes and 17 seconds left at their own 26. And what was really interesting is that, think about this, Mike. Five minutes and 17 seconds to go. Denver has all three timeouts left, plus the two-minute warning. Now, what odds would you have given me that the last play of this game on that drive would be Case Keenum kneeling with 23 seconds to go and then the clock running out? To me, that says it all. When I, when I, want, when I look at what a quarterback does and how a quarterback has played, I want to see exactly what Kevin Stefanski just said. How did he manage the game? And I don't mean the, quote, game manager type of thing. When everybody says, when a guy's not a very good quarterback, oh, did he manage the game? Yeah, this guy managed this game perfectly for the Cleveland Browns. Because, look, he was under a lot of pressure almost all night long. But on that last drive of the game, the last drive of the game, he takes it five minutes and 17 seconds all the timeouts for Denver, plus the two-minute warning, and he allows this team to run out the clock at the end of the game. I just, that I thought run, it was, I thought it was really brilliant myself. That run on fourth and three was amazing by him in the third quarter. But Peter, I want to go to the first play of that final drive because, and Sims and I had yeah. a long discussion earlier this week about analytics and where they have their place in football because the analytics mafia would have us believe that analytics are the end-all be-all and there's no other factor there's no other consideration and if you even suggest it you are stupid you are a moron you should go to bed without your supper that's how they act the first play of that drive was a prime example of how the difference between analytics and actually going out and playing football applies that first play was a momentum killer that first play was a pushback by the Browns against the Broncos at a time when they had cut the lead to three points. And they get a stop here. They get a short field or a reasonable field. They're in position to force overtime. So they're ready to stop the run. They're ready to slow down Dearness Johnson. And what does Kevin Stefanski do? He calls a play-action pass. And what does Case Keenum do? He flawlessly executes it, rolls out, finds Austin Hooper, gains eight yards. And that's just one of those gut punches. When you're starting to feel like, hey, we're coming back. We got a shot. We got a window. We got a crack. Here we go. And boom, they come right out like Rocky on Apollo Creed and put a gut punch right to you. That slows, if not wipes out, the, the, the momentum that the Broncos have built up. There's no formula for that, Peter. And that was brilliant by Stefanski to trust Keenum and perfect by Keenum to execute it the way he did because that could have gone off the rails. And the Broncos would have been feeling pretty good. Hey, look at this. It's second and 10. Or we sacked him or whatever. And uh, we think we can get the ball back and we think we can steal this game. So that's a prime example of how there are certain moments where you've got to assert yourself as a team. And the Browns did it in that moment and, and pulled the plug. 
on all the momentum the Broncos had built up. Well, not only that, Mike, but on that particular play at the start of that drive, when you saw the Cleveland formation, it really looked like a running play. And, you know, at the start, and, and of course you think, okay, kill the clock, kill the clock. That's all you're thinking. But that first play set up the second play because now it's second and two. And you figure, well, they're probably going to run, but now who knows? And the second play is Dearness Johnson for 20. And, and to your point, I think that first snap with a backup quarterback with uh, a really suspect health all over your offensive uh, team. You know, it, it was logical that your red-hot running back is going to get the ball. So you're right. I thought, look, Kevin Stefanski won a game. He's never going to look back at that game and say, that's one of the greatest games we ever played. But if he's honest with himself, he'll look back at that game and say, that's one of the best play designs I ever had in a game, and it's one of the best called games that I ever had. And you look at it and you say, a, a, a win over a three and four team now is the best called game and the best design game? Yes, because of what you had to work with. This was not the Cleveland Browns of August 1st. This is the Cleveland Browns with half of their team in the MASH unit. And again, Nobody's crying for him because Denver has injuries that were almost as bad or, or maybe as bad. But it's just what you have to do sometimes in the NFL, and Stefanski handled it very well. And I think this was a game that if the Browns make the playoffs, there'll be various points they can look back to and say, that game really helped us, that game really helped us. This was a stop-the-bleeding win for the Browns right. because they lose last night. They got the Steelers and Bengals coming up. They still play the Ravens twice. They got some challenges. They still may not make the playoffs, frankly, with three losses before Halloween. But they don't have four losses before Halloween, and that's a potentially huge difference. We still don't know how that's all going to shake out in the wash with 17 games. But if they make the playoffs, last night is a huge reason why, because that easily could have become a loss with the Broncos starting to put you on your heels and you quickly put them back on their heels with those first two plays of the final drive. Two of the players that the Browns had back last night, although they didn't have huge nights from a numbers standpoint, were receivers Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham Jr. Let's hear a little bit from Kevin Stefanski on having his top two receivers back on the field together for the first time since week two. Meant a lot to this team. Uh, you know, having him come out of that tunnel last, I think it meant a lot to our fans. You know, he, uh, he brings the juice, no pun intended. Uh, he brings it to our sideline, um, having him out there, a guy that fights. Uh, you know, he's, uh, I could be talking about a bunch of different guys, but he's one. I mean, he fought like crazy to be out there with his teammates. Odell fought like crazy to be out there with his teammates. And, and to see those guys uh, do that throughout the week and then get out there and not feel perfect, but to do whatever it took, I, I thought was just so impressive. Odell wanted to play very, very badly, and he wanted to be out there with his teammates very badly. Uh, he doesn't feel 100%, and, and a lot of those guys don't. Um, but, but to go do what he did, uh, fight through it, make a play uh, late in the game for us, uh, again, really proud of those guys. I misspoke at the top of that, and I realized it as soon as I said it. They weren't together week two because Beckham didn't play until week three. This is the first time these two close friends and former LSU teammates were together on the same field since at some point 
in the 2020 season. So that meant a lot to the team. Landry had five catches for 37 yards. Beckham had two for 23. Beckham landed on the shoulder again, but came back and played. Landry had some key catches. He had some big catches. He had some big moments, and he had one on third down, I believe, where he hobbled off with a knee injury. He came back to the game, and afterwards, Stefanski said he was fine. They need those guys, and they need more out of Beckham. Beckham gets open, and he doesn't get the ball, and it's not just a Baker Mayfield thing. It's a Case Keenum thing because Keenum wasn't getting it to him last night either. I don't know how much of a decoy value Beckham currently has because if they're never throwing it to him or not throwing it as much as they should – It's not like you're going to strike fear in a defense's heart when he runs down the field. But I do think Beckham has value to the Browns if they can just figure out how to get the ball in his hands a little bit more often, Peter. Mike, you know, the two things about Odell Beckham Jr. that now are, to me, fairly amazing when you think about it. Odell Beckham Jr., in the last three seasons, since opening day 2019, has seven touchdowns. I mean, isn't that just in two and a half years, you know, because of various injuries and whatever other performance issues, whatever. But isn't it incredible that he's got that he's got seven touchdowns in two and a half years? Isn't it incredible that it has now been 54 weeks since Odell Beckham Jr. has scored a touchdown in the NFL? You know, there was a time four years ago, really, where you just took it for granted. What highlight is going to be on NBC Sports football night in America on Sunday night? What is Odell going to do tonight? And it's just, it's a dry gulch, basically. And he's got to work his way back through all of these injuries. And you just really wonder, are we ever going to see Odell Beckham Jr. again? I, I, don't, I don't know the answer. But, you know, his production certainly hasn't been there in large part because of injuries. And now you just wonder if we're ever going to see him again. And this is one where I'd love to know what's going on behind the curtain. He has matured to the point where we don't see the public displays of frustration like we saw with the Giants. But I can't imagine that he's happy with his role with the Browns. He wants the ball in his hands. It helps that they're winning, but they're not winning like we thought they were going to be winning. Four and three still counts as a disappointing start for the Cleveland Browns. The trade deadline is coming up in 11 days. I've said in the past, they just don't need him. He and Baker Mayfield don't click. They never have. And Mayfield will be coming back at some point this year, it sounds like. Even if he should have surgery now and shut it down, he's not going to do that. He's going to come back and continue to risk further injury to the left shoulder. And I respect him for having the willingness to do it. But that just makes it even more prominent in my mind that Beckham isn't going to be a key part of this offense down the stretch. And, you know, you rarely see the teams that should be buyers at the trade deadline behaving like sellers. But this is one that that maybe it does make sense to see if someone else would want to take him. The problem is with his shoulder that was injured on Sunday and he landed on it last night. That may keep a team from signing off on doing it, even if there was a team out there that that would want him. But I'm sure there's a team out there that looks at how he's getting open saying our quarterback can get it to him. And I know Sims would love to see him go to Green Bay and team up with Aaron Rodgers. There must be some quarterbacks that that are salivating at the prospect of what they could do with Odo Beckham Jr. And Beckham is probably thinking, man, I could do a lot more. I could get into the end zone again for the first time in a long time if I was on a different team. I mean, it's possible, Mike, but then you have to consider 
you know, with the salary cap, the amazing shrinking salary cap right now, you have to consider where the cap is going to be and can you afford to take, if he's traded at the trading deadline this year, that's $8 million a team has to take on unless the selling team is going to give, uh, you know, some of that money for that. And then each of the next two years, $14 million. And so you ask yourself, from what I've seen, do we want to totally disrupt our salary structure? You know, and Green Bay doesn't have this money. Can you imagine trading for Odell Beckham Jr. and then at the end of the year, basically sitting down, looking at your salary cap, even if you bring Aaron Rodgers back in 2022 and you don't have enough money to sign Devontae Adams or, you know, who knows, maybe the die is cast and he wants out anyway whether or not they re-sign Rodgers uh, or whether or not Rodgers stays, excuse me. But I just, the cap is such an impediment. You saw what an impediment it was when the market was so limited for Stefan Gilmore. Um, it's just, it's a huge impediment to what might happen other than with the, you know, middle of the roster guys at the time of the trading deadline. As we discussed last week, it was enough of an impediment to keep other teams from trying to raid the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with that $25 million net drop per team as a result of the pandemic. So that is a valid factor, and maybe Beckham has to restructure. Maybe he has to take less if he wants to land with a new team. But 11 days until that question becomes moot if it doesn't result in a trade. The Broncos' defense... The team is quickly becoming moot. They've lost four in a row. The defense isn't good. Vic Fangio said so himself, which is kind of ominous for him because he's a defensive guru. I thought there was a chance, and I think both Joe Buck and Troy Aikman thought there was a good chance that Drew Locke was going to take the field for the second half last night because yeah. Teddy Bridgewater struggled. Now, Teddy took him right down the field to score a touchdown to end that talk and to make it clear that he was going to be the guy the rest of the game, but... I don't know. At what point do they shake it up? You know, I've said all along, Teddy Bridgewater has the higher floor, but the lower ceiling. At some point, you got to reach for the brass ring and go with the guy that has the higher ceiling if you want to turn around a season that's slipping out of your fingers. Yeah, I, I was surprised at that, too, because, look, that interception that Teddy Bridgewater threw last night, that was a terrible, terrible throw and a bad, bad decision. Um, and to me, I look at this team. I think we're going to see it right here. Um, that team right now, we're not going to see it. But that team right now, when you look at them, you say this team has so little margin for error. It's microscopic. And, and that's why, to me, the one thing this first seven weeks of this season has done is it's shown me that the Denver Broncos, again, are going to be in the market for a quarterback this coming off season. It's like the never-ending quest. You go back to Brock Osweiler, Mike. Seven years they've been looking for their quarterback of the future. The Miami Dolphins, and we'll get to them, but the Miami Dolphins and, and the Denver Broncos, it's almost the same thing. The Broncos put a Peyton Manning Band-Aid on it for four years, but then they knew all along, we need somebody for the future. And it's amazing the resources that they have used to try to get their quarterback of the future. And now they've got to try again in 2022. They just have to pray 
that they can put the best package together and that Aaron Rodgers would want to come to Denver. And everything that they've tried to do hasn't worked, from drafting to signing free agents, nothing. And now this most recent one was a trade for Teddy Bridgewater, and everybody loves him, and he won the job in training camp in the preseason, but now he's showing that that the ceiling is lower than maybe we thought it was for him and for the Denver Broncos. And, you know, Peter, Vic Fangio has to worry. We're getting closer and closer to the inevitable point where five, six, seven, who knows how many coaches are going to get fired. George Payton did not hire Vic Fangio. George Payton has no allegiance or loyalty to Vic Fangio. Every guy who becomes a GM has been carrying around a secret list of coaches I'd love to hire when I become a GM. And chances are Vic Fangio's name is not on George Payton's short list. There are others who are, and if the team doesn't get it done, Fangio will be done, and Peyton will be able to hire a head coach as soon as next year. That's just a reality. That's how it works. And Fangio, he's been around long enough to know that's how it works. they got to win some games. It looked good at first, but then it all started to fall apart, and here they are at 3-4 and four in a tough conference, in a tough division, where it's not going to be easy to climb back out of this hole. And now on top of everything else, Vaughn Miller has a sprained ankle. He says he's confident he's not going to miss time. It didn't look good when it happened. It looked more like a knee when it happened. But, yeah. you know, it's it, inj- injuries have been an issue for the Broncos the past few years, too. And, and as you said, no one's going to shed tears for you because your guys are injured. The question is, what kind of a team do you have behind your starters? with guys who can come in and play. And uh, last night it was clear that the Browns were better in that regard and the Broncos still need to do some work. Look, they just don't have right now, and who would have? They've they've got, I think, five linebackers on injured reserve right now. Um, they, they just, they do not have the, uh, you know, the depth. No team would have the depth to fix that, but particularly against the run. You saw it on the first series of the game. I mean, I, I'm telling you, when I watched that, I just said to myself, how in the world can Vic Fangio survive this? How, how, yeah, how can well. he survive this? And, 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 you know, look, I feel bad for him. He's got an epidemic of injuries, and they came at the wrong time, and he doesn't have an answer at quarterback again. And it's looking again like it's going to be a 6-11 and 11 season or something like that. I don't know. But how are they going? How is Vic Fangio going to survive this? And to me, it's unfortunate. It's kind of sad because, you know, in essence, he was a victim of not getting a quarterback and not only not getting a quarterback, but in having a spate of injuries at a crucial position that allowed teams to run roughshod over you. I mean, to me, it's kind of a miracle when you think about it, Mike. They only gave up 17 points last night. I mean, after that first drive, I thought they would have given up 37 so, you know, they obviously made some adjustments that helped, but at the end of the day, it's still a loss. And the big picture question for the Broncos, and the signs are pointing generally in that direction. No one's come out and said it yet. It sure looks like this team's going to be sold in the offseason, that no one from the Bolin family is going to be able to pull this off where the appropriate funding can be raised to buy out the reluctant members of the family who would prefer to just sell the team and cash out. You got seven people involved in this. I think it's going to get sold, and that's going to change everything. And frankly, I think the Broncos badly need, Peter, one owner. They haven't had that voice of authority, that vision that you maybe need when it's time to come into a meeting and clunk heads together and say, we got to have a better plan for what we're going to do at quarterback. 
And I want to know what the plan is, and I'm going to be part of that plan. You know, owners like to stay in the background and act like they don't have a finger in the soup. They do. They do. And sometimes it's bad when they do. Sometimes it's good. But the common thread dating back a decade in Denver is Pat Bowlin handed management of the team over to a three-person trust who handed it over to John Elway, and uh, we saw what happened with Elway. Elway failed upward, frankly, to this position he now has, and they brought in George Payton, and and that's that. All right, I, I, that's something we'll talk about another day because we got a lot of other things to get to. Specifically, the Washington football team, email scandal. I didn't think anybody was going to do anything about it. Well, it turns out somebody is. And we're going to talk about that next here on PFT Live. Around any corner, within every battle, and with the dawn of each new day, the threat of the unexpected, the unpredictable, and the unrelenting lies in wait. But Marines will always be there. They are the constant in the chaos. No matter the battlefield, Marines adapt to win, defeating every shifting threat, protecting our nation's future. The few, the proud, the Marines. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Six teams on buys this week and 12 games left. And frankly, there aren't many that scream out, talk about us for 10 minutes each, which is fortuitous <laughs> because, I mean, that's the best way I can put it. Am I wrong? Yeah, that's right. Was that wrong? Hey, Mike, okay. Mike, which, hey, listen, here, here's, here's, what, here's, what you, here's all you need to know about Sunday in the NFL. The best game is Cincinnati at Baltimore. It's a one o'clock CBS game that will be seen in about 12% of the country. So <laughs> now you know what the, what, what the NFL has to put up with this weekend. And that is that there just aren't any good games this, this weekend. You know, the drama is going to have to be really, really big for everybody to say, man, what a great Sunday that was. But I will say this, a week from today, we will be reacting to Packers at Cardinals. So there's still plenty of great games to come. Every once in a while, there's a little bit of a dip. But it's good that the dip is there today because we have to spend some time talking about the development that came out of the clear blue sky late yesterday afternoon at a time, Peter, when I was standing alone in the wilderness, banging on the drum of they're hiding something, 
There's more out there. Somebody, please, who has the actual authority to compel, or at least try to compel, the National Football League to cooperate, to be transparent, to produce information, to surrender these 650,000 emails, all of which supposedly came only from Bruce Allen's account over a 10-year period. That works out to one every eight minutes of every day of every week of every month of every year for a decade. The, the folks in Congress have caught the whiff of something's fishy with all of this with the NFL, and they are now on it. A letter was sent yesterday to Commissioner Roger Goodell requesting a long list of information and documents and everything. And by my reading of the four-page letter that was sent, these folks understand all the issues at play here, and they want to get to the bottom of two things. Because I always say the cover-up's worse than the crime. They're going to explore the crime and the cover-up. They're going to explore everything that happened at the Washington football team, all that information that was hidden from us, even though the NFL has a history of disclosing everything with one of these major scandals, and they want to find out why the NFL tried to hide all of it. So it's a two-pronged approach to get to the bottom of what happened at Dan Snyder's football team and what happened at Roger Goodell's Park Avenue League office to try to cover it all up. And uh, NFL's got a problem on its hand, and, and it's good. Look, This isn't an anti-NFL thing. This is a pro-truth thing. There's something out there they don't want us to know about, and Congress is going to make every effort to try to get to the bottom of it, which is good. I got a great letter this week from an attorney after I suggested in my column on Monday, hey, look, you know, what the NFL should do is all the emails that, uh, let's say, involved either an employee of the Washington football team or someone aggrieved by the Washington football team, a cheerleader, an employee, whatever it would be. Cheerleaders are employees just in a different way. But, you know, to, to, if, if there was, if one of those people involved in the investigation was adamant, I don't want anything that came out and you promised me anonymity and all that. Okay. Then don't use any emails involving that person. So let's say there's five or 10 of them, you know, eliminate any email with those in it. Okay. And then show every other email. Okay. Because we're not going to believe that there's nothing else in this. I certainly don't that there's nothing else in this, uh, in any way, shape or form. Do I believe that? So if we're not going to be able to see, let's say every email, You know, this attorney who's involved in these things said to me, just redact the names in all the emails. Exactly. I've been saying that for five months. Redaction. And they did that with the Cuomo investigation. Redact the names. So, but the problem is, Mike, as you said in your open to this segment, basically, I think with tongue in cheek that, you know, we're used to seeing all this information come out in every investigation. You know, it's funny, isn't it? We found out an awful lot about Ray Rice. We found out an awful lot about Tom Brady. We find out an awful lot about investigations written down on paper when they're with players. And isn't it interesting that the investigation with an owner is never written down? There is a verbal report. There is nothing hard and fast about this investigation other than the NFL says nothing to see here trust us we know what is right in this case 
NFL, we don't trust you. And we think there is more in this. Prove to us there isn't by showing the redacted emails. And, and I, I hope, I really hope that this investigation by these two Democratic members of Congress gains traction, gains legs. And you know what was really funny, Mike? When the NFL said yesterday, I guess I read it, um, I, I'm sorry, I just read the headline this morning on PFT, which said the NFL, quote, welcomes the, the opportunity to look forward. Uh, share we look forward. With, uh, Congress. Yeah, we look forward. Yeah. We look forward to it. Okay. That's like, Mike, you know what? That's like when an incumbent quarterback sees a team, his own team, pick a quarterback early in the first round of the draft. And he says, <laughs> I look forward to competing with John Doe for the, for the quarterback job here. The hell he looks forward. He is ticked off and he's throwing crap at the wall. And, and so to me, I hope that this investigation has teeth and it shows real, it shines real light on what to me has been an incredibly ugly situation. You know, and, and as one, one good source of mine in the NFL said, could you please explain one thing to me? Why in the world would the NFL go soft on Dan Snyder. Explain that, please. Oh, said, oh, that one's nobody easy. in this league that likes easy. Daniel Snyder. It's ridiculous. Right. Why are we protecting, protecting this guy that nobody in this league likes? Because we're next. Because we're next. One of us. We don't know who, but we're setting a precedent here where somebody starts making allegations that we don't believe. But if there's enough of them that we don't believe, then we have to investigate ourselves. And who knows what they're going to find when they investigate ourselves. And Peter, going back to the original report, non-report, nothing, the punishments announced on July 1, when they didn't provide any facts whatsoever, when it became clear there was no written report from the lawyer who spent 10 months investigating, it became clear to me that if we knew what would be in the report that she was told not to prepare, it would be untenable for Daniel Snyder to continue as owner of the team, just as it was untenable for John Gruden to continue as the coach of the Raiders. Once the public sees this stuff, the guy can't stay in that position. By helping him... They help themselves. That's why they did it. And to your other point, because people are looking for overlap between the Washington football team situation and the Rams relocation litigation that has been largely ignored by the national media but is gaining some traction slowly but surely. A judge there recently accused multiple owners who have been resisting complying with a court order to surrender personal information because they may be on the hook for punitive damages. He accused them of playing a game of three-card Monty. That's exactly what the NFL is doing to all of us in this. It is a shell game. And Peter, you mentioned the issue of redacting emails. Here's the best evidence that it's a shell game. They say on one hand, we can release none of the information whatsoever about the workplace culture investigation in Washington because some of the individuals who came forward requested anonymity. Well, there are flaws in that reasoning from top to bottom. However, the 650,000 emails, as the league admitted to me this week, the 650,000 emails from the account of former Washington executive Bruce Allen are unrelated to the workplace misconduct investigation. Hoist on your own petard. I don't know what it means. I like how it sounds. It basically means you paint yourself into a corner 
They painted and 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 that's gone unnoticed, ignored by everyone. Their main reason for secrecy, they admit, doesn't apply because these six hundred fifty thousand emails are unrelated to the investigation. So my point all week long: the first thing we do, let's see the emails. We may want more, but let's see those emails. And Mike, the reason why they're not going to do that is there's something in there. I don't know what's oh, absolutely. in there. You don't know what's in there. There's something in there. We know some and, of it. And, we know some of it. Yeah. We know just enough. Yeah. We know just yeah. enough to know why they don't want us to see all of them. Yeah. And and I think I think the one other factor in this is, look, there's a lot to uh, you know. I I wrote this on on Monday. You know, one of the things that to me is so disheartening about this whole story is that the NFL is counting, as it always does, the NFL is counting on the white noise of great football games to make everybody forget this. That's what they're doing. Uh, Roger Goodell, go into hiding. You know, just just everybody, everybody just don't, don't even... Don't even pay any attention to Roger Goodell. He's nowhere to be found. And everybody just ignore this. And then, you know, a month from now, whatever, the NFL will continue business as usual, usual and there will be Roger at a game somewhere glad-handing people and saying hello to people. But for now, when everybody wonders about the uh, credibility of the National Football League, where is the National Football League? in hiding. That's where it is. And they just want a bunch of great games on Sunday so that next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all of a sudden everybody will say, oh yeah, that Dan Snyder story, eh, they're not doing anything about that. Forget it. Hey, what's the playoff race look like? That's what the NFL wants. They've perfected the art of keeping your head low and your mouth shut. We've talked several times already this season how there's no transparency when it comes to the various blunders and incompetence of officiating. There's no one who appears on NFL Network or anywhere else like they used to do with Dean Blandino and before that Mike Pereira to explain these things so people can understand it. Just keep your mouth shut. The more you talk, the more oxygen you give to the controversy, and we have a whole slate of bright, shiny objects to distract you from what's going on. And after that, we got another slate of bright, shiny objects. The only days they have to get through, Peter, are Tuesday and Wednesday. And really not even Tuesday, because Tuesday we're reacting to Monday night. Wednesday's the only day of the week where football fans are like, gee, what are we going to do now? And then by Thursday, it's time to get ready for another game. So you're absolutely right. And they're not going to say anything. And they thought they were going to run out the clock on this. And I thought they were going to run out the clock on it. Look, I was reporting on stuff that I could find. And I was looking for new angles to push forward. I'm not just going to go back and revisit something I wrote two weeks ago just to dust it off. There has to be something new or the story dies. Yesterday, right before we found out about the congressional investigation, the Real Sports podcast, I got the quotes from from HBO. Andrea Kramer appearing on that podcast said, the, the person who produced her item on Mark Davis from last month cold called John Gruden. He picked up the phone and he said, people who know me know what I stand for for 58 years. I have a resume of 58 years. The truth will come out. Now, many would say the truth as to him already has come out, but it reminds us there's a lot more to this story. And even though what Gruden did was wrong and he got what he deserved, the way that it happened, 
should be investigated. The fact that someone had the power to take just a few of those secret emails and bring down an NFL head coach during a season, derailing a team during a season. We hear about competitive integrity all the time, the integrity of the game, the integrity of the season. Somebody had their finger on a button that could take out a coach of an NFL team five weeks into a season, and they pressed it, Peter. Yeah, and Mike, you know, to me, I and I wrote this on Monday, uh, you know, if I told you who this was, you would say, oh, my God, he said that. You know, an incredibly credible source said to me, this is a mafia hit on Gruden. That's what it is. And you know why it is? Because he never saw it coming. Nobody saw it coming. It happened uh, without warning. And here it was. And John Gruden, <clears throat> John Gruden now is most likely ruined for life in the NFL. Who knows? You know, people sometimes have short memories regarding this thing. But I would argue that John Gruden is not going to be a head coach in the NFL again. And it happened because somebody, and we don't know who it is, somebody said, why are we going to do this? Because we can. And they did it. And that, to me... It's, it's all, this whole thing is disgusting. The entire thing is disgusting. But the fact that, you know, as, as John Gruden, who had nothing to do with this investigation, had his career ruined because of it, that is cause enough for me, for not just two members of Congress, but I wish it was 200 who would go after this and seek to shine light on this sordid investigation. And he's not a sympathetic victim because, again, he got what he deserved, but he's still a victim of this broader machine that just can pick and choose who it's going to bring down. Look at this. Look at this stuff that we found here. At the right time, we can wipe out the Raiders' season. We can wipe out their head coach for good. And when he says the truth will come out, there is irony in that because we've we've seen the truth in the emails. But he may be talking about the truths that you and I are hoping will come out, how this came to be why they targeted him, who ordered the code red. And I suggested earlier in the week, Peter, if he really wants to go old school Al Davis on this and really do justice to the legacy of the man who hired him years ago to be the Raiders head coach the first time around, tortious interference with contractual expectations and business prospects, file the lawsuit against the NFL. That's not going to arbitration. That's not going to a grievance. And maybe Mark Davis and the Raiders join you as a plaintiff because Davis got as wounded by this as Gruden did, by the timing of it. This could have been handled the moment they found those emails. This could have been handled maybe in January. And Mark Davis could have hired a new head coach who would have been ready to go. You wouldn't have to do this thing in midstream where you're desperate. You have a winning team. Usually the teams with interim coaches during a season have an interim coach because the team sucks. This is a good team, and they wanted to keep playing well, and maybe they still will, but this stinks to high heaven. And one way for Gruden, if he wants the truth to come out about what happened, he's got tools available to him through the legal system, and it'll be fascinating to see if he uses them, Peter. I hope he does. Uh, I hope he retains Mike Florio Esquire to uh, get involved in this. I know how close I'm you retired. are with John Gruden and the yes. relationship, the kind yes. and gentle yes. and familial relationship that you have with John Gruden. Please make this happen, Mike Florio. Yes, yes. Uh, I don't expect anything from John Gruden no matter how hard I try to vindicate what happened to him, I'm not going to try to vindicate what he did. 
But what happened to him was wrong. And I think we all have an obligation to recognize it and push for the truth. Kudos to Congress for getting the process started. But still, and Peter, I don't know who's out there doing a deep dive and is going to emerge with a 10,000 word story that really tears this all apart. All I know is this, in the limited time I've had this week, I've made enough phone calls to spin the thing forward a little bit. The notion that 650,000 emails were all from Bruce Allen's account. More than 1,000 emails to and from Jeff Pash. We reported that this week. Bruce Allen sending an inappropriate photo to a couple members of the league office in 2011. We've reported that. There's plenty of meat out there, folks, and I don't have time to go chewing on all of it, so let's hope that people get to the bottom of this. Because I also think, Peter, and then we got to take a break, I think there's people on the inside who don't like what's going on, and they are of goodwill, and they are of fair mind, and they are looking for ways to help. And that ultimately is the thing that could cause the House of Cards to collapse. Let's take a break. When we return, Deshaun Watson, will he or won't he be on the move between now and November 2nd? We'll talk about that on this Friday edition of PFT Live. There's obviously something more to it. I don't think that it's what people may think it is because, I mean, you look at the roster and you look at the guys that are there. I mean, it's been so massively turned over that it's there's only a handful of guys that are even there from last year that I played with. So it's not like I'm like, oh, I want to go and beat my old team or, oh, I want to, I can't wait to face this guy because it's it's not the same team. It's not the same organization um, that I that I remember and that I was a part of. I know how unbelievable the fan base is. So that's why it hurts me to see where it is now, because I believe those fans deserve to be living that those high times and to be experiencing those great moments. And it, it hurts to know that they're not and to know that they're struggling. And so um, I hope that they get back there at some point, and I hope that they get to do that because I know firsthand it's an unbelievable place to play when you're rolling. J.J. Watt facing the Houston Texans this week and yeah it has changed dramatically and I think one of the big reasons let's be realistic about it team founder Bob McNair passes Cal McNair takes over Joe Judge the Giants coach recently made the comment that the fish stinks from the head down well the head of the fish is ownership not the coach and the owners get a pat we talked about this yesterday with Stephen Ross and I have a feeling we may talk about it with Stephen Ross coming up again the owners really do get a pass when it's time to criticize the performance of a team, don't they? They get involved, they make it look like they're not involved, and then they run and hide. Run and hide is a very effective tool, apparently. They run and hide and blame it on somebody else. Meanwhile, they hire the next group of people who eventually will be responsible for the mess, and then the owner runs and hides and fires them and starts over again. But what went wrong in Houston, Peter? I think that Cal McNair doesn't have the chops to run the team, and it's all flowing downhill, and it's manifesting itself in a horrible roster and a horrible season. Look, there's 94 different ways we can go with, with this, but you know the bottom line is the Houston Texans are going to be forced uh, to trade Deshaun Watson. Whenever you're forced to do something in the NFL, you never do as well with, let's say, a trade as you would have if there were a number of suitors involved. And to me... You know, what John McClain has reported in Houston, 
that uh, he believes a trade will happen with Miami uh, and Houston involving Deshaun Watson. To me, I just think it's a it's beyond a bad idea. I think it's a terrible idea. And it's a terrible idea because of so many things. One, that you have basically given uh, to a Valoa less than a year and a half. I think he's had 12 starts in the NFL. You've given him 12 starts and now you have determined that he's not going to be your guy going forward. And when you do determine that, you not only take all of the draft capital and all of the capital you used to get in place to take Tua Tonga-Valoa, but now you use all of the capital that you're going to have to trade uh, to get, uh, you know, to get Deshaun Watson. So to me, I just, I don't understand it, especially when, how in the world can you know, unless you've got a nod and a wink from Jeff Pash or Roger Goodell or somebody saying, you know, if you're Miami, saying, okay, we're going to suspend him for X number of weeks and then we'll see what happens. And then you still don't even know what's going to happen in, this, in, in all these cases and how they'll be adjudicated in Houston with all the women who have come forward and accused him of something between sexual harassment and sexual assault. Well, maybe there's some emails between Jeff Pash and Stephen Ross that would be instructive on whether and to what extent there are guarantees made, wink, wink, nod, nod, about Deshaun Watson. I'm being facetious, or maybe I'm not. Uh, my understanding is the league has taken no position on anything, that Miami back in late August, when we first started reporting that something was going to happen, that people believed it was going to happen, the Dolphins called the league office for some insight on whether or not Watson would be put on the commissioner exempt list. And the league's not making a decision on this until they have to. There's no reason to. The Houston Texans have him on paid leave. We as the NFL don't need to do anything. We're not going to do anything. We're not going to make a decision. Because, Peter, if they decide to put him on paid leave, they're going to hear it from all the people who say, what about innocent until proven guilty? He hasn't been charged of a crime yet. Why are you taking him off the field? If you don't put him on paid leave, you hear an equally strong argument, equally persuasive. How can you let this person play when there are 22 civil complaints alleging something between sexual harassment and sexual assault and 10 criminal complaints that have yet to be resolved, some of which are alleging sexual assault? What's wrong with you? So they don't want to do anything here. And I think they'd rather he not be traded for the rest of the season than they never have to make a decision because if they trade him, whether it's to the Dolphins, and frankly, the way that McLean worded his item from Wednesday, he said it could happen by the end of the week. I think that was the dinner bell being rung by Nick Casario for any other teams. Hey, now's your chance to get to the table. Philadelphia, Carolina, Denver, this is it. We're going to do this with Miami. That's what I think. It, that's how I read it. But regardless, yeah. if he gets traded, the NFL is going to have to make a decision because the next team is not going to pay him to not play for the rest of the year. You know what, Mike? In many ways, I believe that if the Miami Dolphins, if you could give Stephen Ross and or Chris Greer truth serum, and maybe we'll find out in the Chris Greer memoir 18 years <laughs> from now, okay? Maybe we'll find out that Stephen Ross sidled up to uh, Chris Greer at some point after Miami, or, or, he, or he virtually sidled up on Zoom or in a phone call. And he sidled up to Chris Greer and he said, this season is down the toilet. 
we lost to the friggin' Jacksonville Jaguars. And this season is down the toilet. Go get Watson. I don't care about this year. I care about opening day 2022. But the ironic part of that is, if let's just say that anywhere near that happened, and that is an absolute guess of mine. I have no sources telling me anything that Stephen Ross has done in this particular case. But let's just say that, that happened. Here's the ironic thing. What happens if on some late May Friday, right on Memorial Day weekend at 5.02 p.m., that there is an email that drops from the NFL. NFL suspends Deshaun Watson for first eight weeks of 2021. And then uh, the, uh, the Miami Dolphins are going to be stuck playing uh, whoever, Jacoby Brissett, Matt Moore, I don't know who it's going to be, but whoever their backup is, and it will be yet another lost season for the Miami Dolphins. Well, and this is why the Texans aren't relenting in their expectations, because they want the Dolphins to view this as a 10-year transaction, not a two-year transaction. Right. That's how the Texans get past the short term. Hey, yeah, you're going to have some hiccups. You may not have him at all for 2021. You may not have him for the first eight games of 2022. But we've seen this before. People come back from these allegations. I, Based on the things I've heard, I don't think he's at real risk of going to prison for 10, 15, or 20 years. I think that would require many things to go wrong for him in the criminal justice system based upon the things I have heard from people I trust over the past seven or eight months. So this is a long-term play. That's how the Texans are couching it. But I also think the Texans have a sense of urgency to get this done by the time the trade window closes this year. You know, I'm not privy to the conversations between the team and Deshaun Watson, but I've had moments where based upon the things said by people with the Texans, like we're taking this day by day, I feel like they're trying to just keep Deshaun from getting too upset about the fact that he hasn't been traded. Like, just bear with us. We'll get this done. Maybe at some point they promised him they'll get it done. But I think their risk is if they don't trade him this year, what if he shows up on Wednesday, November 3rd and says, give me my helmet, let's go, I'm ready to play. They don't want to do that because they want to trade him in March. And if he gets injured, even if he's allowed to play, assuming the league doesn't say you're on the commissioner exempt list, they can't force him out. You can't put a guy on paid leave involuntarily. The only reason this works is when he goes along with it. If he shows up, they have to deal with him. And I think they're concerned that if they don't trade him by November 2nd, he could show up on November 3rd. I haven't heard that. I don't know that. But I think that's one of the reasons why they're motivated to get their best offer on the table now and be done with this and move on. Because I think they could get more if they waited until March. You'd have more teams at the table. But I think they're motivated to get this done before November 2 at 4 p.m. Eastern. Mike, can I ask you a question as somebody who is well-versed uh, in the legal profession? This, I keep wondering this, okay? Why wouldn't Deshaun Watson, who knows there is some culpability here, he knows he's got, remember you reported on this, right? You know, six months ago, this at least one email to a woman saying that he was sorry, you know, that, 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 you know, for whatever happened. Okay. So he knows that there's going to be some culpability. Why 
doesn't he just tell his attorney to make uh, a ridiculous offer, a $4 million offer, universal settlement in this, split it among all of the victims in this particular case, and he apologizes, and then he throws himself on the mercy of Roger Goodell's court. He gets suspended for eight weeks, and then, so this season's a total wash. But the story is over. He knows it's over. And then on opening day, opening day of the offseason in 2022, he can go back and start to rebuild his character and his football career. Why wouldn't he do that? Well, I think he tried to do it. And I think the egos of the lawyers got involved. Rusty Harden, who represents Deshaun Watson, Tony Busby, who represents the 22 plaintiffs who sued him one after another back in March. Look, I'll go back even farther than that. When the first request for a settlement came and the lawyer who was helping Watson at the time disrespected Tony Busby and failed to take the situation seriously instead of sitting Deshaun Watson down and figuring out how deep this went, they should have settled it then. When Tony Busby asked for $100,000, that's a signal between 50 and 75 gets it done. Should have just done it then and might have cut this whole thing off. But once you get the 22 civil plaintiffs all represented by Busby, they did have a financial deal in place. It broke down over whether or not the terms would be confidential. Usually the person writing the check wants everything confidential. In this case, Rusty Harden was insisting on no confidentiality. Busby wanted confidentiality. They weren't able to work it out. And the problem is the criminal process started to take root, which makes it irrelevant now. Your window was shot to settle these cases and cut this off. Once the women start going to the police and telling their stories, and then there's going to be a grand jury, that doesn't matter anymore. Now, we, we can't really have any certainty about what happens to him from the standpoint of criminal jeopardy or any legal jeopardy until the grand jury makes a decision. And I, I'm not sure he's going to be indicted. I don't know. Um, but you're right. He should have done it. I think he did it. I think he at least tried to do it, but the lawyers got in the way. And it all fell apart because this should have been done by May 1. And you're, everything's resolved. There's nothing further. Nobody went to the police. It's over. It's done. And as you said, you throw yourself on the, uh, the mercy of the commissioner and maybe you miss six to eight games for 2021. And then you're good to go for next year. So this has been mishandled on both sides. It's been mishandled. And I feel bad for Deshaun Watson because he's caught in the middle of it. But, but again, we've seen enough to know. He does have a reckoning that is coming. He does have to, to make good with some of these individuals because his own attorney admitted that some of these massage therapy sessions that he was engaging in on a repeated basis, some of them became consensual sexual activity, which implies that there may have been occasions where, you know, he, he thought it was going to go a certain way and it didn't. So he needs to make, make it right with the people who believe they were aggrieved. He needs to do it. To finally answer your question clearly, I think he tried to do it back in April or May, and they weren't able to get it done, unfortunately. You're saying it's impossible to do that right now? Right now, they got to wait to see what the grand jury does. It doesn't matter if you settle all the other cases. There'll be a time to settle all the cases later. For now, they have to see what happens with that grand jury. And there are factors involved, and I'll just say this very briefly before we take a break. Usually, in a grand jury setting... 
And they say you can indict a ham sandwich if you want to. But you also cannot indict a ham sandwich if you want to. The prosecutor has tremendous discretion. The prosecutor could go in with a very one-sided presentation aimed at getting a felony indictment at Deshaun Watson. But then what do you do with it? Because the chances of getting a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt are slim in this case. So one of the real questions is when the prosecutor presents these claims, will the prosecutor do an even-handed, two-sided presentation with information from Deshaun Watson? Because if you do that may not get indicted, then the prosecutor doesn't have to try to go secure a conviction in a losing case, because I think that's what the prosecutor would be concerned about here. We have an indictment. Now what am I going to do? Because if I go to trial, I'm not going to win. And prosecutors don't like to go. Nobody, no lawyer likes to go to trial if they think they're not going to win. Let's take a break. When we return, we got more PFT Live as we get you ready for week seven of the 2021 NFL season. We'll be right back. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 